a couple of things I want to talk about in these two sessions. I'm going to split it up. I was just going to do one long one, but I think we're going to split it up in a couple sessions. But I want to first talk about redemption and the work of God, the work of grace that has happened. I've been looking in Ephesians lately, doing a study in Ephesians, and in, a, I think, 16 or 17 lessons, I've gotten about 15 verses in, and we're still, we're still there. And the immensity of our salvation is the thing that most people just don't understand. It's, it's, a, it's a vast and great reality. But the beauty of it is, in all of its vastness, in all of its greatness, it is singular. Because it is all confined within one person, one man. And the prayer that Paul prays for the church is that we who have had such a gift of grace given to us, such a redemption wrought in us, those of us who have been, as he would say, blessed with every spiritual blessing, that we would come to know and see and behold in the face of Christ the greatness of that salvation Amen. and to see what God has wrought. And so I want to take these two, try to be short because we're putting about, you know, eight hours of teaching in two, two short sessions. But there's something that I was dealing with recently and I want to... Um, I mean, I'm not going to point out a bunch of verses that all of us know just to get us there because we, we all kind of already have those things in our back pocket seemingly. But I want to at least read this in Ephesians. And this is Ephesians chapter 1. Trying to find the verse. This is off the cuff here. Let's see. Yeah, verse 7. Or verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, Wherein, in that grace, he hath abounded toward us in all of his wisdom and his prudence. And that's a beautiful thing to grasp. Amen. What God has done is all in accordance to his wisdom, right. his understanding. It has nothing to do with ours. Amen. has nothing to do with how much we know of it. The knowing of God, the knowing of Christ, as we'll talk about, because the next session I want to deal with spiritual growth. But in this session, I want to set the basis for that growth. What's the, what's the basis and foundation upon which we are to grow? Well, it's this grace. Peter will say it, grow in grace. This is the realm of grace in which we abide. This is our place of dwelling, as Brother Lumen was saying. This is our state of being. That in this one we have been given redemption according to the riches of your grace, and he in that grace abounded toward us in all of his wisdom and prudence. Same thing Paul would say in Romans 8. 
that the God who did not withhold his son, how shall that same God withhold anything from us? That in that son he has given to us all things. And that's what we're looking at. This is a declaration in the first part of Ephesians and the whole of it, but the prayer that Paul prays in the first chapter is based upon this abounding work of God in Christ, this work of grace that has been given to us and made us accepted in Him. So, in all of His wisdom and prudence, this is abounded, having made known unto us the mystery of His will in accordance to His good pleasure, that he purposed in himself. Think about this. Just consider the fact that none of this has ever had its origin or its continuance or any, anything at all dictated outside of him. That's good news for us. That salvation itself, whether it was preordained or given, none of it had a source outside of him. This is all him doing it according to to his own pleasure. And that's important to understand when you're dealing with salvation when there's so many questions in the minds of most Christians who say, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I, am, you know, am I working hard enough for God? Listen, this was his doing. And the only thing that keeps it is his working. This is not of you. And this is what we're going to see in this work of redemption. We're going to go to Jeremiah to look at it. And then in this whole reality of spiritual growth, that's the realization spiritual growth brings. The way we're going to talk about spiritual growth flies in the face of what most people think and rebukes what most people think is actual spiritual growth. So, what he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Don't have time to go into that, but he's speaking there of the Jew, the Gentile, that which is heaven and earth, in whom we also have obtained, this is past tense, have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now there he's beginning to talk about the Jew who first trusted. That would be the Jew who had the promise and who first came to Christ. In whom ye also trusted, that word's actually not there, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, now he's speaking to the Gentiles to his, whom he's writing, in whom also after you believed you were sealed, this is going to be important as we get into Jeremiah, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Now most people read that and they'll read the word earnest and they'll think at a bank level, and say, earnest money is the down payment of something more that's coming. That what that means is we get a little down payment and then God in certain installments throughout the ages will give to us more and more, you know, in successive installments. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that he's the guarantee. 
That's what the word earnest there means. It's the reality that guarantees and certifies, that makes certain our inheritance. Christ is the certainty and guarantee of our inheritance. Unto, not until. It's unto. It's something, this is done unto this end, not until this finally happens. This Christ being in you as, or the Spirit who has sealed you, being in you the guarantee of this inheritance was unto this end, the redemption of a purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now that would have took 45 to at least an hour to go through all these words, but you guys, I don't have to convince you. So that's what we're looking at. All of the work of God was unto the redemption of a purchased possession purchased by his blood, a people who are bought with a price. And I want to look at this in the light of um, a prophecy in Jeremiah. And we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 30, 31, 32, and 33. We're going to, I'm going to read through all of them, but we're going to point out parts of it. Most of us understand when you get into chapter 31 of Jeremiah, especially into the 30, 31, 32 verses, uh, you're looking at when he begins to talk about, I will make a new covenant. Well, leading up to that is very important. And right after that is very important because we're seeing a prophecy that most people put off into the future. But when you recognize that this is in the very context of him saying, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people, then you realize that this can't be in the future. This has to be something that is realized in the coming and the making of a new covenant. So let's look at this for a moment. So in Jeremiah 30, I'm just going to read a few verses just to give us some context. Verse, verse 7. Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off his neck. I will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, listen to this phrase, whom I shall raise up. Unto them. This immediately brings you into the resurrection. It brings you into the coming of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. It's pointing to that. When people read Jacob's trouble, we're still looking for it. Most Christians are still waiting for that time. There was a time called Jacob's trouble, but it was until the coming of Christ. Okay, let's go on. Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob. Saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar. Thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, 
and will not leave thee altogether punished. Now verse 13, there is none to plead thy cause that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. Now listen to these words. It's pointing out a condition. It's the same condition that the woman with the issue of blood came with. What does that mean? Nobody could fix it. Nobody could heal her. No one was able. She wasn't able. She spent all her money trying to get people that said we're able. They couldn't do it either. Only Christ was able to heal this. And this is what he's telling them. All thy lovers have forgotten thee, those whom you sought after other than me. And they seek thee not. They're not there to help you. For I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased. Why was the law given? So that sin would increase, is what Paul said. So that sin would be seen to be exceedingly sinful. This is the same thing. Verse 15, For Why criest thou for thine affliction? Thy sorrow is incurable again there's the same issue an incurable condition called sin iniquity and corruptibility for the multitude of thine iniquity because thy sins were increased I have done these things unto thee therefore all they that devour thee shall be devoured all thine adversaries every one of them shall go into captivity they shall spoil thee or they that spoil thee shall be a spoil and they that pray upon thee will I give for a prey. Look verse 17. But I will restore health unto thee. You know the word health? Healing is in the New Testament sozo, which is salvation. When he tells the woman with the issue of blood, your faith has healed you, it's the word saved you. It's sozo, it's salvation. He's not just talking about a physical healing. This is pointing to a greater healing that Jesus will bring about. It is a true healing of that which is incurable, that which no men could ever touch, that which we didn't have medicines to correct. We try to correct ourselves. Most Christians, I find, want to be fixed rather than be overridden. They want, they want it to be, I'm fixed by Christ and not, not I but Christ. Because they want something still to, that God can look at and applaud or look at and say, good job. There's none of that in salvation. Paul speaks of a salvation we have that Christ is made unto us all things so that we cannot boast or glory except in him. That's what salvation's all about. The spiritual growth we're going to talk about brings that to our soul's perspective, makes us aware of such a reality, and causes us to rejoice in it. So this is what we're seeing, the restoring of health, bringing healing to the soul of men that was incurable otherwise. I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeks after. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places. And the city shall be builded upon her own heap, 
and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. Now, we could continue on, but let's, let's go down to verse 22. I'm sorry, let's go to 21. And their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them. And I will cause him to draw near. And he shall approach unto me, for who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now, then we get into chapter 31. I'm going to jump down there. And it says, at the same time, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. For the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Now, in Numbers chapter 10, I'm just going to read this real quick. In Numbers chapter 10, we see something of that where he had caused them to rest or went to cause them to rest. Because this is the whole work. This is salvation. It's to be brought to his rest. Verse 31 of Numbers 10, and he said, Leave us not, I pray thee, for as much as thou knowest how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. And it shall be, if thou go with us, yea, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same will we do unto thee. And, the, and they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. Listen to that. Three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place. So where is that searching out of a resting place come to be realized? In the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's in the finished work. It's in who he is. This is all a picture of salvation. And this is where we're going to bring it to its culmination in the coming of a new covenant. The Lord hath appeared, verse 3, Jeremiah 31, hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Mm -hmm. See, that's the point most Christians don't think. I mean, we read this in the Old Testament, and we don't realize the reality carries over into its fullness in the New. Sure. In the New Covenant, there is an everlasting love we're dealing with. Amen. And it's not a love that is based upon us. Nothing that God has done in us or for us is due to us. You know what it is? It's the goodness of God. It is God in his goodness mercifully inviting the souls of men to enjoy his own enjoyment. To rest in his own rest. To have his relationship with his son embedded into the soul permanently and unmovingly. That's what we're talking about, something that continues. It never changes. It doesn't move under your feet. When you come into Christ, you're brought upon a firm foundation, something that is not going to change just because you are changeable in your own self. I was going to say stupid. That would be me. Because you make mistakes, because you make all these problems for yourself and other people, it doesn't change because it's an everlasting love. He can say that before you came along because that love was not to you. It was the one who lives in you. 
That's what the, the scripture would say is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. It's not the love of God just given to us and then God comes back from time to time, assesses the situation and says, do they deserve this level of love or not? No, it's the goodness of God. And then he continues, therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. That's the drawing to him. It's loving kindness. It's mercy. We're going to skip over some things here, but I hate to do it, but I have to to continue. Um, verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth. The blind and the lame, the woman with child, her and her travaileth with child together. The great company shall return. They shall come in weeping supplication. I'll cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Verse 11, oh, listen, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him, as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. You know what was stronger than us? You know what was stronger than us in Adam? The nature of Adam. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. Every time I try to do good, there's something that overpowers that. And that's the law that's in me, sin and death. That was stronger than us. You know what Christ has done? Ransomed us from the strength of him who was stronger than us. And you know what that salvation has done? Brought us under the rule and government of another man that's stronger than us and greater than us. There where we were once slaves to sin, we are now slaves of righteousness. What does that mean? We are still slaves. We're still prisoners. We're still under the power of another. That's what the whole work is. We've never been in charge of any of this. We love to think we have some say in it, but we have no say in this. We have no power to make it better or make it worse. This is God's work. And this is what we're going to see as we go because he says in verse 13 here, and you could go into verse 12, and I have all this written down and going into Revelation, but verse 13 then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy will comfort them, make them rejoice from their sorrow. I will satiate, that's to satisfy and fill full the soul of the priest with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. That's salvation. It's so that we would be satisfied with his fullness. That's the whole picture. We've talked about this, I think, before. When you go into Matthew chapter 20, and... I haven't found any of this in the notes yet. I'm trying. <laughs> but in Matthew chapter 20, there is a parable. And this is in the same section of Matthew where he begins to speak about the rich young ruler, the, the, the man in the temple who thought that he was better than the, uh, the publican, and showing them, hey, guys, you're not all that. You think you are because you keep the law. But this is a work that God has to do by his grace, not by your works. 
So in the context of all of those stories, he tells another story about a man who went to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. And he says that he went out several times during the day. He started at 6 a.m., which is the first hour of the day in the Jewish time. And he went out and hired some folk. And they agreed upon a wage that would be given to them, a penny a day, a denarius a day. And they agreed. That was a daily wage. And he said, okay, go into the vineyards and work. Nine o'clock, he went out and found more. It never throughout any of that time says he came and inspected the work that they were doing in the vineyard. That's important. But he went out and hired more people. Next three hours, he went out and did it again until, until five o'clock in the afternoon. He went and hired another group of folk. And then at six o'clock, the day was over with. So you know what happens, and this is a picture of the Jews who came first and then the Gentiles who came in last, according to the linear timeline of it. And the Gentiles came in at the end of that dispensation of labor and work and got the prize. They got the wage. They got the payment and didn't do a thing to deserve it. But who comes griping and complaining and murmuring when the pay starts to be handed out, the people that got hired first, that's the Jew. They came in at the first and they had to go through the heat of the whole day and labor in that vineyard. And they say, wait a minute. We came in at the beginning. They come in at the end and we get the same thing they do. And the man said, yeah. Didn't you agree? Upon this wage, wasn't the prophecies about one payment that I would bring at the end of the work day? And you agreed. So did they. I only have one wage to give you. I don't have it doled out in measurements. And that's what we want. We want God to measure these things out according to what we do and how much we deserve. So we go about trying to work harder and work harder. But that's why it's so significant. He never inspected their work. He never did. He never went in and said, you're not doing it right. Not in this parable. But they came in and he told them this. He said, listen, this is mine. This belongs to me. And it is, it is right that I can do with it what I want. It belongs to me. And he says to them, are you angry with me because I'm good? <laughs> Some translations say gracious or generous. Do you hate me now because I'm just good enough to give to everybody, deserving or undeserving, according to your ideas, the same thing? That's the beauty of salvation. We measure ourselves by ourselves, which he says is not wise, Paul would say. That's not wisdom at all. Wisdom is, no matter what we are in the flesh, Christ has made unto us the same salvation. He is our life regardless. Amen. In its fullness. No man has a greater salvation than you do. No, nobody has a greater salvation than you receive the moment you were born again. Not one person. Nobody's up here and you're down here. Salvation puts us on the same level and it is complete in Him. That's the level. And that's where we start. That's where we begin. 
It's a beautiful thing, and it's all a work of the mercy and grace of God. Because he says here, verse 31 of Jeremiah 30, and this is where we get into the new covenant. This is what this has all been pointing to. Every one of the prophecies that we've been reading up to this is speaking about this moment. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the day shall come, saith the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them. But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, (coughs) saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, that's a beautiful thing. That's the whole reality of the new covenant. That it's no longer commandments on the outside saying do it. It is a law living in you saying I am that. It is a law fulfilled in us not a law demanded from us. Or a righteousness demanded from us. It's a righteousness fulfilled in us. (coughs) That's the difference. Who makes this so? Him. Are you in any way, or me in any way, the thing that makes this so? Are we the security of all of this? No. Now, this prophecy now goes on into chapter 32, and it's the same thing. It's basically a direct repeat of what he's just said in 31. But now he uses the prophet Jeremiah and does what we would call a little external skit to show what he's talking about. He's going to do this in a visible example. So in in chapter 32, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, said, uh, the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison which was in the king of Judah's house. Now notice, he was shut up in prison. That's a lot like death, burial, right? It's the same same idea. This prophet was shut up and put away. But the word of the Lord came to him. And uh, Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. This is verse 4. And shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. And he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, saith the Lord. Though he fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not prosper. He's basically telling them, you have no hope here. It's not going to overcome any of this. This is not going to happen. It's going to be a bad end. And that's the picture. That's men. That's Romans 7, right? There's no good thing here. 
Nothing's good is going to happen. There's no out, good outcome, nothing favorable. It's all bad news. That's basically what happened. Well, then the Lord speaks to Jeremiah, verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come to thee, saying, Buy thee my field, that is, in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. Same picture we see with Ruth, right, and the kinsman redeemer in Boaz. We see that same picture. But here he's saying, you're going to buy this field because you're the only one that has the right to redeem it. What is this all about? It's a beautiful picture. So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord and said, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Now listen to that. He didn't say buy it so these people will have it. He says buy it for yourself. Buy it for you. This is Remember what we read in, in, in Ephesians 1? He did all of this according to the counsel of his own will. And he did it according to his own pleasure. This is his doing and he did it for himself. We have this concept in Christianity. He did it all for me. And we, we find some rejoicing in that. And it's true that we're beneficiaries and partakers. But he didn't do it all for us. He did it for himself. He did it so his will could be fulfilled. His intention could be brought about. He did it so his good pleasure could be realized. And we see that culminated when he says, this is my beloved son. This was all for him and his doing. But we benefit by it and partake of it when we are found in Christ, having nothing of our own. There's our benefit. Because we don't have to bring our stuff into it because it's already filled full of, of spiritual reality. We don't bring anything to this. We're brought into it by a work of mercy. And this is what this is spelling out. Um, Buy it for yourself. And then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. In verse 9, And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and, and weighing him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. Listen to these words in verse 10. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. The word subscribe means basically just to write it. Basically, I wrote a letter that was the proof and evidence of the purchase of the land. But it's called the evidence. This writing that says, I purchased it and it now belongs to me, is the evidence of this transaction. I want you to hear that. And, and, and as you hear that, hear these words. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of what is not seen. That's faith. Faith is, that's the saving faith that brings us into the new covenant. That brings us to the evidence of what at one point in time under the testimony could not be seen, but yet was hoped for. 
Faith brings you to that reality. That's why it's substance. It's not because faith is some substantial thing that we conjure up and believe a lot and is finally substance. No, if faith brings you to Christ who is the substance of what was hoped for. And he in you is the evidence of what was at that time not seen. Now, this is called the evidence. He writes the evidence. It's very important to note that here when he says in chapter 31, when he says, I will write it in their hearts, speaking of the covenant, same word used. I write this evidence. Here it's, I'm going to write it in their hearts. Why? Because the same picture is being said here. The same thing. So I subscribed or wrote the evidence, sealed it. There's the sealing of Ephesians. So I took the evidence of the purchase. This is verse 11. Now listen to these two different distinct pictures. I took the evidence of the purchase, both which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open, meaning there was one letter that was sealed up. And there was one letter that was not sealed up. It was left open. And, it, and I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the sight of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison, meaning I had a bunch of witnesses. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, verse 14 is the key, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the redemption or the purchase, both which is sealed and the evidence that is open, and put them in earthen vessels, that they may continue there for many days. Now that's the picture. That's the beauty of what we're seeing. That's what the new covenant is. It's the evidence and the proof of our redemption placed in earthen vessels to remain there forever. That's the whole picture here. This is not something in the far distant future or the near future. This is the new covenant presently written in our hearts. It is God sealing in these earthen vessels a reality that is securing for us the ongoing reality of our state of being because nobody else could secure it. Nobody else had the right to do it. He's the only one that had redemption in his possession as his right to do it. And he did it and he put it in earthen vessels. Now, Think about that the next time you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that there is a treasure in earthen vessels. Now think about that prophecy when you hear those words. Because that to me gives it a greater view, a greater understanding when we, when we say we have this treasure. In earthen vessels. Watch this treasure. See, we have a lot of ideas about what the treasure is. A lot of crazy ideas, even, of what the treasure is. But I think Jeremiah just told us what the treasure is. The treasure is the evidence of a, of a transaction of redemption that has secured for us all things. That makes it certain 
in the midst of our weakness because it's still in earthen vessels, the fragility of earthen vessels, but they still contain the evidence of an eternal redemption and it'll abide in those vessels forever. And that's the beauty of it. It's in, those, it's in there, in those vessels, sealed tightly to keep it from being touched, keep it from any decay, it cannot be, it, you know, it's like what uh, Peter says, this great salvation that we've been born into. It says that it is, uh, how does he word it? Let me go to chapter 1 of Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again, that's born again, a lively, in, into a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, this is again, he says, you have the right to inheritance. To an inheritance that is what? Incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, meaning nothing can touch it and make it lesser than what it is. It will never become degraded in any way. See, that's the beauty of this. And if you go on to read in Jeremiah the questioning that starts to come up in the mind of the prophet. He says, wait a minute, you're God and all. You've done all these things. You're more than any man could ever imagine, but you've brought these people out of Egypt. You delivered them with a great deliverance, and yet they're still stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and will not do what you say. Why did you tell me to buy this land? These people aren't worth it. Basically what he's saying, that's his argument. And God's like, I know. I know. But it's not because of them. It's because of me. I'm doing this because it's me. I'm good enough to do what they don't deserve. I'm good enough to provide for them what they can't provide for themselves. And that's just who I am. Because he goes on and begins to speak about this. And says, oh, I love this. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Basically saying, in their obstinance, I'm still able to do this. Because they don't deserve it doesn't diminish my power to do it. There's nothing too hard for me. And then he begins to say, yes, I've done all these things. I've delivered them from Nebuchadnezzar. I've, uh, I'm bringing them out of this uh, bondage. Um, but then look at this. I will gather them. I will bring them again into this place. I will cause them to dwell safely because he's saying what you have done ensures this. This will be a place of fruitfulness again. They will plant vineyards here again. They will build houses here again. They will prosper here again. Why? Because you've redeemed this place. You've done it. You've done it. Your work, your purchase, your redeeming right has performed for these people what they couldn't do themselves. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. This is in Jeremiah 32, verse 40. Oh, let's start in verse 38. They shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart. I'll give them one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and for their children. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put fear in their hearts 
and they shall never depart from me. Verse 8 of chapter 32, because this whole thing is what he's going to do for them. That's what he has done in us. And it shall be to me, I'm sorry, let's, let's uh, verse 6. This basically repeats what he said in chapter 30. I will bring it health and cure. I will cure them, will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. I will cause the captivity to return will build them as at the first I will cleanse them from their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me I will pardon their iniquity whereby they have sinned and transgressed and it shall be a name of joy and praise and honor before all the nations of the earth that shall hear all the good that I have done unto them and they shall fear and tremble and the voice of joy and the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom the voice of the bride and the voice of them that shall say praise the Lord for his for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. That's the, that's the de declaration in this redeemed land. And then at the end of it, he continues to say, I will perform that good thing that I have promised. And in those days will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David and shall execute judgment and righteousness in this land. In those days <coughs> shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord, our righteousness. See, this is not called by any other name. There's no other identification to this that has been redeemed except the Lord who is our righteousness. The same question the prophet asked is the same question we ask a lot of times. Why in the world are you still here? I know I woke up a lot of days. <laughs> After certain days, I've woken up the next day and say, God, you're still here? How in the world did that happen? I thought I'd left you behind. No. Why? Because not one of this has anything to do with you. That's right. I'm that good. Not one part of this is determined by you being good or bad. Because even good and bad as we define it is not good or bad as God defines it. It falls way short. Righteousness as we define it isn't righteousness as God's defined it. See, that's what spiritual growth is all about. It's learning his definitions. It's learning his perspectives. And it's coming to realize that his definition and his perspective is not me in any way. It is Christ. It is this evidence who abides in this earthen vessel. So we'll stop there, pick up the next one. Take a break, get some coffee. <laughs> closer and closer to Jesus. I was here an angel. They're coming after you. Oh, exactly. They're coming to help me or get me one. I'm not sure. All right. Good? All right. Okay, guys. We're just going to pick up where we left off. And like I said, in this session, I want to focus more on the reality of spiritual growth and what that is and, and the lessons I've been calling the, the need and the nature of spiritual growth. Because 
in most people's mind, spiritual growth is one thing, and we we refuse, or not refuse, I guess, but we do not understand its nature. And But when we were talking in Jeremiah, just to set the stage for this, because this goes into exactly what Paul's prayer is in Ephesians about the eyes of their understanding being enlightened. We'll read that verse in a moment. But you'll recall that when he puts the <clears throat> evidence of the purchase in the earthen vessels, the one thing it says he puts in is actually two things that he puts in the vessels is, a, is the evidence of the purchase that one is sealed Sealed up, that means it's closed, nobody can see what's on the paper, and the other is open. And I thought, that's weird, that doesn't make sense, why would you put an open and a sealed uh, in there? It's because of the nature of salvation, and the need that it brings about. Let's look at both of them. First, there is one that is unsealed, one that is wide open to view. But who view? Men couldn't see it, it's inside the vessel. But who could? God. It was open Amen. to God's view. And that's the beauty of our salvation. That which is in these earthen vessels, while men may not be able to see the evidence that is there and may claim it's not there because of what they see the earthen vessel doing or think about the earthen vessel because we make assessments based on this. We look at one another and we judge one another based on the earthen vessel. God looks beyond the vessel and he sees the treasure. He sees the heart. He sees the reality that abides far deeper than men's eyes can penetrate. He sees the proof. Men want to find the proof in, in the vessel and God sees the proof in another other than the vessel. He sees his work. And he glorifies himself in his work. He rejoices in the fulfillment of a work that he has wrought inside the vessel. So it's open to his view, but the other sealed. Why? Because it must be revealed. It is a reality that although open to God's view, has to be unclosed or disclosed to men's perspective. So it has to be open. So the reality is the same, it's just who sees that reality is different. God sees it as it is, men's eyes have to be opened to see it as it is. And that's what the revealing of Christ is. It is God revealing and reading in the heart of men what he has inscribed in the heart. See that? It is God redeeming and revealing such great redemption. The prophet says, with him is multi what is it exceeding great redemption that's that's what has happened that's the work and this in the light of all of that is the prayer because Paul's whole idea his his intent in writing this letter to the Ephesians and every other letter he writes is to declare to them first and foremost a salvation that is powerfully Fulfilled. It is something that doesn't change. It is something real and unmovable. It is something you don't keep, but it keeps you. You can't do it, but he has. That's what God beholds. And so in the light of such a great salvation, Paul would pray in Ephesians 1, that the God, verse 17, that the God 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you. Notice, he has to give. He has to do this. This is his work. To give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. What does that mean? The eyes of your understanding being flooded with light that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is the evidence of the purchase was also called the evidence of the inheritance because it says to him, you have right of inheritance, not just the right of redemption. So this is the prayer of Paul based upon the foundation of you have received all things. See, that's what we have to keep in mind when we approach the, the idea of spiritual growth. We have to understand that we are people who possess all, yet have nothing that belongs to us. That's a big dilemma in most people's mind. You have all, but none of it belongs to you. But see, in the, in the heart that is growing in this grace, that is a standpoint of rejoicing. That is a place we can rest and rejoice and glory and abound. And we'll rest in that reality and not wrestle with that reality because that's what we do so often. Because when faced with the sufficiency of our salvation and faced with the fact that the sufficiency of our salvation is Christ and not us, most people wrestle with that. Why? Because we think spiritual growth is Jesus is here on this level, we're here on this level, and spiritual growth is we get up to this level. And we get to the point where we really don't need the grace of God because all our ducks are in a row. We got it all figured out. We're holy. We're spiritual. Right? Isn't that what uh, Korah says to Moses when he's rebuking Moses for standing in the presence or and Aaron for standing in the presence of God? He says, hey, wait a minute now. What's this big deal? Why do you think so much of yourself, Moses? We're all holy here. We're all able to stand before God acceptable here. And he's like, whoa, whoa, God's about to do something you're not going to like. And God just wipes them off the face of the earth. Why? Arrogance. The arrogance in the face of grace is an arrogance when God has set in your midst one singular relationship with himself. That was embodied in Moses and Aaron, and they wanted to have one that belonged to them. Why? Because we're holy too. We deserve it. I mean, we work hard. We do what God says to do. And he says, there's only one. And he makes sure that he makes the point by erasing everybody off the face of the earth except that one man standing there. <laughs> I mean, this has happened over and over. Only Noah remained and those that were with him in the ark. It's happened over and over. Why? God's making a point. That there is only one who stands before me holy and righteous. There's only one who has found grace in my sight. You see, the thing we wrestle with as believers so often is the difference between being partakers and being producers. We think that we are called to produce something for God. 
But we are called to be partakers of that which is of God. And that's what salvation is. It has made us partakers of the divine nature, not producers of the fruit of that nature. And that's what most Christians are after. We want to produce it. We want to manifest it. We want people to look at us and see it. And the question is, what do they see if they do? If they can look at you and see anything that is divine, you know what they've done? They've missed the divine. And they have substituted something far less for that divine reality. And spiritual growth makes you aware of the distinction between flesh and spirit, me and Christ, and it causes us to rejoice in the fact that he has made Christ to be unto me all things. Instead of, again, wrestling with that concept and having a problem with it. And thinking that such a reality makes me lesser, it, it exposes me as not yet having everything. No, it exposes you as having everything, but nothing of it belongs to you. It's a gift. It's the same penny that you didn't work very hard to get. You came in and he gave it to you because, hey, that was what I have. That's all I have. And that's everything. And then the growing begins. Then the comprehending of reality begins. And that's the thing we have to understand. We begin at the start. We begin at the finish line. Our beginning in Christ is at the, is at the finish line of his will. You know what that means? God has reached his conclusion. God's intention has been fulfilled. And when we are born of God, we are brought to the finish line of God's ultimate intention. And the growth begins from that basis. We're not growing to get anything. We're growing in the comprehension of the all things that have gotten us. And we'll see that as Paul say that in Philippians in a moment. But let's, let's read these verses in Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 17. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. <clears throat> I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care. This is a warning. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Now, let's think about that for a second. What does that mean? What does it mean to lose your own stability? In King James, it, were, it uses the word steadfast. Do not fall from your own steadfastness. There's the question in most people. Or do we have a steadfastness? Do we have something that makes it certain and secure? We just read in the last session, we do. This is, the evidence is in these vessels. That's what makes it steadfast and sure and certain. Not us, but him. So the warning that Peter's given is do not fall for the lies of corrupt, lawless men. Who's he talking to? Who's he talking about there? The same people Paul talks about and says they are the dogs and the concision. 
It's those who have taken the law beyond its intention. And therefore, what are they doing? They're transgressing the law. When you have taken the law beyond its ultimate aim, and the conclusion of the law comes and says, I am, and then you go on with the law and take it beyond him, guess what you've done? You have broken the law. You've transgressed it. You've stepped beyond it. He calls them lawless people because what they're doing now is they want to bring you back under the restraints of religious activities, observances, touch not, taste not, handle not, eat this, don't eat that. Yeah, say this, don't say that. All these things that Christianity has brought in and made to be the evidence of salvation and the evidence of Christianity. How do you prove you're a Christian to people? Most people, they prove they're a Christian by saying, you know, I used to be a drug guy, but I'm not anymore. Well, thank God for that. Well, thank God for that, but that doesn't prove anything. It's good. (laughs) I'm glad you don't do drugs or drink or any of that anymore. That's wonderful. But the transaction of salvation is far greater than what you don't or do. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the work of God that brought you from death to life, not from drunk to sober. That's a big difference. Again, not advocating drunk, just saying that's not salvation. That's not a true transaction of redemption. It is from death to life, from darkness to light, from condemned to to no condemnation. Why? Because he abides in the soul. And that's what makes it certain. And so when he says to them, do not be moved by the error of men from your own steadfastness, what does that mean? Does it mean you better be careful not to mess up? No. Where's your steadfastness found? Exactly. And there's only that. And you know, we can hear those words and we do hear those words and and Listen, I say those words all the time. And even for me, I will think, man, that's monotonous. Just saying it over and over and over again, you think, my God, I get tired of saying it. I know they get tired of hearing it. But you know what? It's the truth regardless. And that's the only reality there is to declare. And I'm glad it's monotonous because it means it's simple enough that even an idiot like me can at least hear the words and say, my God, you've got to make known to me the simplicity of this because the simplicity of it is too great for me. Because I want to complicate it by adding me to it. I want to see where I fit in. You know where you fit in? You're a vessel that has a treasure in it. That's where you fit in. You're a nothing that has everything dwelling in it. And that's your calling, brethren. God is called nothing so that he can make Christ to be in that nothing all things. So that your boast is found in the simplicity of the uh, sovereignty and sufficiency of Christ and no other. That's what spiritual growth brings to your soul's perspective. You see that the hope into which you have called is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That the salvation that you have is determined by the presence of Christ and not the, uh, the multitudes of your efforts and works. 
you begin to see as you grow in the grace of God, and this is what he says that will keep you from such error and falling, but I want you to see your steadfastness first. You'll see there that the soul is constantly dependent upon the presence of Christ to be there. That we never get away from being those who are dependent upon his allness. Because that's all we have. That's all we need. But that's all we have. And as our continual need is there. Because we do. And that's the problem. Most people think we grow and we get where we don't need all this mercy. Yeah, you do. You need it to get there and you need it to stay there. You need mercy constantly. His mercy endures forever. You know why? Because it's needed forever. We never get to the point where we don't need grace. That's the realm in which we live and abide and grow. Now, so where's your steadfastness? Let's look at this for a second because this is, this is a beautiful um, verse. In Psalms 51, we all know Psalms 51 is the prayer of David, a prayer of repentance from David when he is repent, repenting because he went into unto Bathsheba, committed adultery, and not only that, but committed murder, or had murder committed on his behalf. And then he comes before God and he begins to repent. I want you to hear this because this is a man who's not only just saying, oh God, I'm sorry. That's what we call repentance. You know, I'm sorry. And then... You know, next day we're saying we're sorry again. And, okay, but that's not repentance. Here's repentance. And this shows you your steadfastness also. Because this is what he's praying for, steadfastness before God. Verse 1, Psalms 51. Have mercy upon me, O God. You see that? There's the need, mercy. You know what the need after that's going to be? Mercy. You know what the need after that's going to be? Seeing the mercy you have. <laughs> Seeing God's mercy that's been given. Oh God, according to your loving kindness, remember he said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. According unto your multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. That's salvation. That's not just saying, I'm sorry, and he says, oh, I forgive you. Try better. You know, do, do better next time. No, salvation is blotting out of the transgression. That's a work of a finished work. That's your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. So he's not just saying a surface forgiveness he's needing. He's not just saying I'm sorry for what I've done. Basically he's going to reach back to his very origination as a human being and say I'm sorry for the source out from which I come. I'm wrong from the very start. That's what I need to be healed. That's what needs to be remedied. That's the healing that God says in Jeremiah he'll bring about. That's what the healing of the woman with the issue of blood was all about. Because under the law she was ceremonially unclean and could not come into the public and could not be touched. That's the beauty of it. She hides behind and just kind of crawls through and secretly moves in because she knows she's breaking the law doing what she's doing. 
And she just touches the hem of his garment. And he knows someone's touched him. He fell virtue, go out from him and heal this woman. And he says, wait a minute, who touched me? And they're like, wait a minute, you're surrounded by all these people. And you say, who touched me? We don't know. But the one who touched him did. And she knew immediately she was healed of her issue of blood. And she comes to, them and comes to him and tells him what has happened. But she knew that she was otherwise incurable. She had to touch Jesus. And what be, what's so beautiful about it is a woman who was filthy and unclean can touch him and he was not affected by her filthiness. Not in one way. It did, you know, because a person that had such a, under the law, if they touched anybody, that person they touched was also unclean. You know who that didn't apply to? Perfection itself. You can touch men and make them corrupt, but you can't touch an incorruptible life and make it corrupt. That's beauty. That's our salvation. We have come from corruptible to incorruptibility. Why? Because Christ abides in us. The touch of, of corruption doesn't affect it. Again, there's the distinction that has to happen. Who lives in you or you? There's the, there's the division. Where's your salvation made certain? You are the one who abides there inside you. Because spiritual growth will make that distinction. It'll cause you to understand that there is a great difference between me and him. And the beauty of it is my whole journey in Christ is not to make the difference lesser and lesser and lesser. So one day I look just like him. I walk in a room and they're like, hey, is that Jesus or Raven? I promise you that never will happen with any of us. They're never going to be fooled to think Raven looks like Jesus or Raven is Jesus. I promise you that. What they need is to see the same Jesus Raven is seeing. So that their heart is convinced of the certainty of an indwelling life other than this. They're convinced by the evidence that God is making known to them, not what I'm trying to make known to them. Most people have settled for the surface level. And God wants to take us beyond the surface and show us something greater than the vessel. Show us a reality that's stronger and that keeps us in the midst of our weakness. Because guess what's going to be there? Always your weakness. But guess what's going to be there in the midst of it? His allness. And that's why Paul can rejoice in the grace that is sufficient and say in the midst of it, I rejoice in my weakness, not because I love being weak, but because in the midst of it, he tabernacles over me and he is my strength. He is the sufficiency that holds me in place when I'm on shaky knees. And can't stand on my own two feet. He holds me in place before the presence of God. Because he stands there as the certainty of it all. Unmoving. Unshakable. And that's why Jude will say. He's the one that keeps us from falling. And causes us to stand unblameable in the sight of God. Who can do that? I'm sorry but I have not got to anywhere near good enough to stand in the sight of God. Blameless. On my own, that doesn't happen. But because he's in me, that is absolute. 
and unchanging. And the reality of salvation is settled there. And the whole work of God from that moment on is to open my eyes to see the sufficiency of the one who abides within. And I won't be falling for men telling me, no, 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 he's not enough. He's not enough. You got to add this to him. You got to add a lot of prayer. You got to add Bible study. That's what makes you really a Christian is studying the Bible. Nothing wrong with any of that, but that's not what makes it so. We should study. We should pray. We should do all the things scriptures say, but what makes salvation real is him abiding in the soul. And what makes my soul aware of that so that I am not moved here and there and in every direction men will take you is the seeing of Christ who lives in me. God unveiling my heart to see the vast treasure that's there. And you know where my heart's occupied from that moment? I want to know the vastness of the riches of the grace of God that are universally and eternally vast in their substance. And I will be eternally knowing that. There is no exhausting to the level of his greatness. And that is why the prayer. I want God to open your eyes. But where's your steadfastness? Listen to this. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when you speak and be clear when you bring judgment. Here's verse 5. This is, where the, this is where the source of the problem is. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Not, man, I made a big mistake. Nope, the source is wrong. <laughs> the seed is wrong. Thou desires truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part thou make, will make me to know wisdom. You hear that? You desire truth in the inward parts, but what does he do? He makes known his wisdom in the heart. That's what Paul's talking about. It's Paul saying, I want him to make known his wisdom because what does 1 Corinthians say is his wisdom? Christ made unto you wisdom, which is what? He is your righteousness. He is your redemption. He is your sanctification. That's wisdom. That's the wisdom he'll say in the next chapter that we speak among those who are what? Perfect, complete, who have reached the conclusion and completion of the matter. We speak this wisdom to them. That's a wisdom no man can know. Only the Spirit of God can know and make known. That's the wisdom he demands and he will reveal. Purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out my transgression or my iniquities. Listen to this. Create in me. Here's the, here's the reality. Create. It's a new creation. It's a new heart. Create this in me. Don't just fix what's already there. Create in me something that's not there. 
Create in me a new heart or a clean heart. Oh God, that's something pure. That comes from him. And renew a right spirit within me. That word in the literal version, if you read that in the literal translation, it is a steadfast spirit in me. Unmoved. Not just right. Not just I'm right before God. I'm unmoved before God. Why? Because this is not me. This is what he's creating in me. This is what he is bringing about in my heart. That's what makes it steadfast. He puts the steadfastness of the Spirit of Christ in my heart. So now, when Peter says, do not be moved from your steadfastness, what is he talking about? He's not talking about your performance. He's talking about the presence of the Fullness of Christ, who is the steadfastness of your soul, who stands in the presence of God for us, perfect and unblameable in the sight of God. And because we're found in Him, we stand in Him, partaking of such a state of absolute fullness. And peace and perfection is our portion because He abides there, not because we've done it. We've arrived. No, he arrived. We've made it. No, he made it into me by the mercy of God. I hadn't reached the thing. It reached me. And he keeps me. That's the beauty of all of this. And that's what spiritual growth is all about. So when he says this, this is the answer to it all. Verse 18, not only do not walk away and lose your stability, but grow in grace. Actually, it's grow in the grace. There's the definite article there. That's a big deal. The grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that grace, but just think. We think growing in the knowledge of the Lord is continuing to grow in our knowledge. We're growing in knowledge and we're, our knowledge of Him is getting more and more. I heard someone recently say, you know, Jesus has to keep growing and growing in me. And I'm thinking, how does that work? <laughs> of his fullness have you received, and then yet he's getting bigger and bigger? I don't get that. No, what gets bigger and bigger is my view of the greatness of him that already abides in me. He doesn't get more and more. My view of him gets more and more. My appreciation of who he is in me gets greater and greater. But when we see grow in the knowledge of the Lord, we're not saying let us get more and more knowledge of the Lord. We're saying let us grow in the knowledge that belongs to the Lord. In other words, let him make his knowledge known in our hearts in greater and greater measure. That's the growth. It's not me getting smarter spiritually. It's about the God who knows all things, sees all things, who's done all things, and is satisfied with what he has done, making his knowledge of all of that known in me. It's what Peter, I think it's Peter, maybe John, says this. Brethren, if your heart condemns you, if your heart does condemn you, 
Here's the beauty of it. God is greater than your heart. <laughs> you know why? Because I have condemned myself so often. And, 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 and on my terms, rightly so. But guess who knows something greater than I do? God. He knows my heart because he knows the steadfastness of the one who abides in that heart. So when I'm saying, hey, I'm, I'm this and I'm that, no, he's saying, no, Christ is what you're not. Christ abides sufficient when you're not sufficient. Because guess what? I'm never sufficient. But then he says, if your heart condemns you not, then you have confidence toward God, meaning your confidence has him in view, not yourself. It's toward him and not you. That's what Paul says. We are the circumcision who worship God in spirit and have what? No confidence in the flesh. That's a soul that's growing in the knowledge of the Lord. And as we grow, the questions disappear with regard to how am I doing? How great am I? Am I all right? Is God looking at me and nodding in agreement or is he shaking his head in disagreement? Which way am I going? Where's my salvation? Where's my state of being? No, it begins to be solidified more and more in understanding as I see him in a greater and greater view. My salvation remains the same whether I see him or not, but the beauty of the Lord is he shares with me his view of an unshakable, unmovable reality so that my feet will not be moved and my understanding can be assured and I can actually rest in God's rest. I can actually rest in the rest that God himself has that I can actually know as I am already known of God. That's growth. But look at the realm in which it happens. Grow in the grace of God. It's in that realm, it's in that sphere that we grow. It's in that place of grace that we actually grow. And this is not when he, you know, this is not a confession of missing anything or lacking anything. It's a confession, rightly so, of ignorance with regard to what we have and where we are. Because in some degree, whether great or small, which it's never really small, it's always great. In some degree, we're always ignorant of who he is and where we are. And the more and more the eyes of our soul is open to behold Christ as our life, we begin to see greater and greater that he is sufficient. He is all. And that's all we need. That's enough. He doesn't need any, anything added. He doesn't need my efforts to make him who he isn't. <clears throat> my hand can't touch this. He's made it where that's the case. It's untouchable. It is in a realm closed off to me. But it's given to me by his mercy. That's beauty. That's, that's, that's the salvation that we have. That's perfection. But it's found in another. But this is the same thing where Paul would say, hey, you who are justified by the, by the law, you've fallen from grace. It's the same thing as falling from your steadfastness. The whole answer here is growing in an understanding of who he is. Paul's sight as the losing of our stability is not the loss of our salvation, 
but it's the, the lack of sight, not being occupied with the singular source of our steadfastness, who is Christ within. Men will always divert the attention of those who have clean escaped from the corruption of this age. You remember that's what Peter said? We have clean escaped from the corruption that's in the world. But he's warning them, don't allow men to bring you back. The men will make you focus on the things they assume will make you godlike, Christ-like, spiritual, holy. I mean, the lie from the very beginning is, you'll be just like God. That hadn't changed. That's still the lie. I stated earlier, the answer to man, God's never-ending long-suffering with him, is answered in one perfect risen man. You remember God says, my spirit will not always strive with me. Well, that's true. And you know, men are still waiting for that time to come where God doesn't strive with men anymore. They're thinking it's the coming to Christ one day. No, it was the coming to Christ to put away sin once and for all. You know what that is? That's the end of God striving with man. You are dead. Not much striving there. I've never wrestled with a dead man in my life. Kind of hard. You're dead. There's the end of us. all strife on God's part and man's part. There's the end of it. So what the answer is, is the Lord said, my spirit will not always strive in me. And he is flesh. He is always flesh. Here's the answer, though, in verse 8 of Genesis 6. Noah found favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here's God's view. Is a man in the midst of all that corruption. In the midst of saying they're all wicked, they're all evil, the hearts of men are evil continually. He sees a man and says, this is the one who my grace is upon. And in that man, he brings about an entire generation. He brings about an entirely new creation. One blameless, a preacher of righteousness, headed in a man. And... That picture keeps going when they're in the ark and they let forth the birds. And then in verse 8, this is Genesis 8, he sent forth a dove. You know the picture, to, to see if the waters were abated off the face of the ground. That means the new creation was ready for men to inhabit it. And that's beautiful when you see what this comes to. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her feet and she returned to him. But he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her into the ark and he stayed over seven days and again he sent the dove out of the ark. The, the dove came in to him in the evening and lo in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. What does that mean? That's, in fact, it, it speaks of the first and then the second because you have the olive leaf that speaks of Israel and, and all of that. So you have that first and second idea there but he comes off basically saying here's the fruit. Here's the promise of a new creation. Then, verse 12, stayed yet another seven days, sent forth a dove which returned not again unto him anymore. And it came to pass in the 600th first year, in the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried up. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. The creation was now ready to be inhabited. And then... Jesus comes. 
baptized. Comes up out of the waters of baptism. And what happened? The dove that did not return to Noah comes and lands upon the new creation. It lands upon Christ coming out of the waters. That dove descends and says, this is the place I was always talking about. Now he's found the creation that set his foot upon once and for all. Now he says he has received the spirit without measure. That's the new creation. This is my beloved son. What does spiritual growth do? It brings you face to face with the beloved son. It brings you face to face with the only one God can look at and says, this is my pleasure forever. In fact, what we want to do is God to say that about us. Spiritual growth makes God say it about him and you rejoice that you are found in him not having anything of yours. Again, that's real different than spiritual growth. It's taught because spiritual growth, again, is taught to where we grow so much we don't really need mercy and grace. No, it's in the realm of grace we grow. It's in the realm of not I but Christ that our growth takes place. It never proceeds from there. It just grows in the comprehension of that grace that has been provided of not I but Christ. It's just a greater and greater view of our, our need of his ongoing and abiding sufficiency. So our growing is in the sphere of this grace. It's in the light of this man in whom a new creation is realized. I'm trying to. Let me just skip over a couple of things. Let's go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 and we'll stop here. But Philippians 3. I want to show you uh, an example of this growth. And we all know these verses very well, but there's a part in these verses that most people don't focus on very often. And I think it's probably the most beautiful part of it. I mean, all of it's beautiful, of course, but there's a part here that, again, we don't focus much on, but to me it gives you this... What we, again, what we have to understand is our growth is not in a panic, right? Growing in the grace of God does not put us in a panic, meaning I've got to get up here to this level or I'm missing something. Growth in Christ is upon the sufficiency of a finished work. Growing up in the grace of God is upon the basis of a grace of God that has been provided that anchors the soul in the holiest of all. So it's not like we're lacking something, so we got to see it. It's that we have it all. We've got to behold it in the face of the one who is the all. That's the whole thing. So we can actually pursue the knowing of Christ upon the basis of an eternal rest, a Sabbath. So in the growing of in, up in the knowledge of him, we're not violating the Sabbath. We're abiding in the rest of God and our hearts just wanting to know the rest. <clears throat> so we read or we quoted the first part of chapter 3 brethren beware of dogs evil workers beware of the concision 
I always thought he was talking about the circumcision at, at the first there, speaking of the Jew. Well, he is speaking of the Jew or the Judaizers, but he calls them the concision, not the circumcision. The word concision means mutilators. Why does he call them that? Now, this is a man who was a Jew who was circumcised, means the removal of your foreskin. So now he looks at the Jews who would force Gentiles and others who are not Jews to convert and become circumcised. What does he call them now? Mutilators. You've mutilated your body. In circumcising your flesh, you are mutilators of your body now. That's a change. But here's the thing. We would think Paul is making a distinction here. Circumcision is nothing. Now uncircumcision is better. That's what we think he's saying here. But he's not. He's wanting to show them, guys, none of it means anything. None of it matters. Circumcision, uncircumcision. That's what spiritual growth really brings you to understand. None of these things that people stand on and say, this is right, this is wrong, and all the ways we look at stuff and we take our places and we choose our side, doesn't matter. None of it does. Why? He's the only thing that matters. He is our sufficiency. Not that we would claim sufficiency in ourselves. Whether we are circumcised, uncircumcised, if we... Do this, don't do that. We're Baptist or Pentecostal. There's all the fights. We're baptized in Jesus' name or the Trinity. Who cares? And that's kind of Paul's theology. Who cares? Christ is all. That's a simple answer. But you know, that simple answer is the only answer. <laughs> that's the only answer there is. None of it matters. That's why he'll say in Corinthians, guys, if you were called being circumcised, don't, don't, don't desire to be uncircumcised. I don't know how that happens, but don't desire to be uncircumcised. If you're called being circumcised, don't try to be uncircumcised and vice versa. Why? Because that's not what it's about. Your calling has nothing to do with circumcised or uncircumcised. It has to do with keeping the commandments of God. How do you do that? Christ in you, who is the fulfillment of the righteousness of the law himself. That's what it matters. That's where the sufficiency is. So he goes on and he says, We are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, have no confidence in the flesh. And then he notes, tells them, If I was to be one who could boast, and have confidence in the flesh and what I've done and my abilities and what I've done under the law, I'd be the one that could boast here. And then he gives his pedigree. Circumcised eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, persecuting the church, touching the rights in the law, blameless. That's pretty big. If you can be blameless according to the letter of the law, you're doing pretty good. But that's the same man in Romans 7 says, even though I try to do the good of the law, evil's still there. So I can do what it says, but I can never be the one of whom it testifies. That's the dilemma. Again, we're always on the surface, and when it said, just do what Jesus says, what does that mean? 
Do what God told you to do and you'll be fine. No, I can't do what he told me to do. Those under the law couldn't do it because it testified of another. That's the whole point. This was never about perfected men. It was about a perfect man living in men who were not perfect in themselves. It's about a treasure living in a wretched earthen dirt vessel that could break and crack at any moment. But our sufficiency is him. That's why God knows the treasure in it. He doesn't give much of a care about the vessel it's in as far as salvation goes. That's not what determines it. He leads and guides these vessels, thank God. But as far as your salvation being certain, it's all up to the treasure in it. Thank you, Jesus. So we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. We grow in the understanding. And this is what Peter's, I mean, Paul's going to continue to say here. What things were gained to me? That's the things that I thought were wealth and riches as toward God. Spiritual riches and wealth. Things of the law. Those things I counted loss. For Christ, it's not like me saying, I gave up drinking for Jesus. It's not, I gave up my lifestyle for Christ, and then I'm like, aren't I good? I gave all that up for Jesus. No, Paul is saying, thank God I gave all this stuff that pointed to him up because I found the real thing. Man, there's a smile on his face. There's a joy in his heart because all of those years of being under a system of shadows, he has now seen the reality of the person that cast that shadow and he has laid hold of that man. And he's rejoicing in the fact that I can set aside the things that are far less and lay hold of the reality that is greater. But then, and this is not even spiritual growth. This is the reality of salvation that brings you from the lesser to the greater. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him. See, there's the thing that Paul desires more than anything. Not that he would be in him. That's not what this is saying. One day I want to be found in him. No, you're in him. Paul was in him. What did Paul desire though? That I would find in him the reality that is not of me. Having nothing of me, all that he is. In fact, one of the commentaries I read says that it's more, more correct to say and find in him all things that I thought I had under the law but finding all things in him and knowing that it's nothing of me at all. Not having my own righteousness, but finding in him the righteousness that is of faith. The righteousness of God. You see whose righteousness that is? It belongs to him. And that I may know him. Here's the knowing. Here's the growing that he's talking about. This is what he's praying for the church in Ephesians. That you may know, that you may grow, that your eyes may be opened, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, 
being made conformable unto his death. Again, let's look at the order that I may know him in his resurrection first. What does that mean? That I may see the one who lives first, comprehend he's my life first, and then comprehend I am dead and he is my life. Comprehend that all else has no life at all. Being brought into the true form of reality, which is spirit and truth. And we'll, <clears throat> that I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though, here's verse 12, not as though I had already attained. Or already perfect. And we read those verses and say, wait a minute now. Now see, Paul even says he's not perfect yet. He says he hadn't attained it yet. But he's not talking about reality. He's talking about realization of reality. He's not talking about what he has. He's talking about that which he comprehends of what he, what he has. I'm not saying I know it all or comprehend it fully. But what I do know is this. I follow after. If that I may comprehend that for which also I am comprehended of Christ. That's knowing as we are known. It's the same thing. There's a reality that knows me. God knows me in his beloved. You remember Paul will say that. He says, not that you have known God, but rather are known of God. There's the stability of the thing. You're known of God. And Paul is saying, here's the thing I'm after. I want to know that which has known me. I want to comprehend that reality that's already comprehended me. Meaning I want to see the single and sufficient reality that defines my state of being just like God does. I want to see the same reality he sees. I want to know a reality that holds me in place and keeps me there. This one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind. That's the things of the testimony, the things of the law, the things he once thought were gain. Forgetting those things, pressing forth in the things which are before me. That's before my face, the things God is revealing before my face. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. There's that prize. And people will say, I'm still going for the prize. No, you have the prize. Like I said a while ago, we started the finish line. We started with the victor's crown already on our head. That's why he'll say in Colossians, brethren, let no man judge you in holy days, meats and drinks and festivals and touch not taste, all those things, and let no man beguile you of your reward. That's not saying let them not take you away so you don't get your reward one day. It's an umpire taking away a ward that's in your hand and saying, you don't deserve this. You hadn't won it yet. That's what he's saying. Let no man play the umpire and take your prize away from you, take your medal, your crown away from you and say, you don't deserve it yet. You're not worthy of this crown yet. You've got to add these things and do these things to get it. He's saying, do not let men do that. Why? Because you've received the prize. The answer is to apprehend the comprehension of the prize that you have been given. The race is won. The war is over. 
Sufficiency abounds in the soul and has brought fullness to the heart. Now grow in that grace. See Jesus who has made unto you this prize, who has given to you as the wage at the end of the day. But, but let's, let's con- consider these parts. Again, parts we don't hear a lot. Verse 15. Let us therefore, to this in the light of all he said, let us therefore, as many as be what? Perfect, complete, complete in him. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. Meaning, let's rest in the assurance of this. This is our completion. Let's rest here. But listen to this beautiful phrase. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, meaning you don't see it, you don't understand it, you have another view, you have another comprehension with regard to it, guess what? God shall reveal even this unto you. He's not saying, man, I got to sound the alarm because you're about to lose your salvation. Because you don't understand it. You don't see it. You don't comprehend it. No, he's saying, guys, if you don't see this yet, as it truly is, and you're otherwise minded than this, God's sufficient to reveal even this unto you. You know how I know that? Because he's done it to me. And he continues to do it in me. Because I'm as ignorant as anybody ever has been. And he's still gracious enough to open my heart to see reality. To see a reality that is sufficient and complete and perfect. But then in the next verse he says, So, nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, meaning that which we already understand and comprehend, let us walk according to that rule. See? Let us just walk in the reality we are seeing. Let us comprehend and live. If we are, what does it say? If if you're in the Spirit, walk in it. And if we are comprehending reality of not I but Christ in any degree at all, just walk in that reality. And just wait. Wait. He'll show you more. Because guess what? There's much more to see. (laughs) I remember in Costa Rica one time I prayed. And I said, God, will there ever be a moment in time where I just feel like I'm just scratching, where I don't feel like I'm just scratching the surface of who you are? And I was hoping for an answer like, oh, yeah, one day. But he said, nope. Because no matter how much of me you have seen, there is always the same of me to see. That, that's, that sounds puzzling. Mm-hmm. That's true. No matter, no, he says it this way. No matter how much of me you have seen, there is never less of me to see. That's great. You know how divine and awesome that is? To understand I'm not like, a, like going through a school book and finally get to the last chapter. There's no last chapter. 
there's an end that is everlasting. There is a summation that is everlasting and eternal. And my growth is within the context of that salvation, of that summary, that summarization God has brought about that says, I am that I am. And as we grow in that reality, we grow in the assurance of the sufficiency of Him and no other. We grow in the understanding that what He has provided to my soul is a provision that overrides me. It overrides my weaknesses. It overrides my insufficiencies. And it makes Christ all in all. And again, I can rejoice and boast in that and not wrestle with it and try to fight it because I feel exposed. No, when you realize you've been clothed with Him, you don't feel exposed. You feel embraced. <laughs> you feel covered and safe. Yes, and rest in the sufficiency of Him. So, that's, that's enough for today. We love you. Thanks for listening.